0: Welcome to Menopause Reimagined. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky. I'm a nutritionist in menopause, menopause educator, and menopause researcher. I'm also the co founder of WeArmorphous.com. I'm excited today because we were named by FeedSpot one of the top 10 most popular menopause podcasts around the world. So, thank you to all of you who listen to our podcast, who share it, and who leave reviews. We are helping so many women take control of their health and their overall symptoms with nutrition, lifestyle, and supplements. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Christy Sutton. She's a chiropractor who's interested in asking why health problems occur, what the root causes are, and what are the safest and most effective solutions to health problems. Her book, The Iron Curse, which comes out in September, is inspired by diagnosing her husband and many patients with hereditary hemochromatosis and other iron-related health problems. From her experience as a clinician, she has discovered that there is a silence epidemic of undiagnosed and untreated hemochromatosis. Now here's Dr. Sutton. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sutton. Thank you. So I found you on Instagram and I saw that you, I saw your posts and I love what you talk about. So I asked you to be on the show. So I'm very grateful that you said yes to come on our Menopause Reimagined podcast. And I wanted to talk about something that I know you're an expert at, which is iron. And can you tell us a little bit, you know, I had done an interview with Dr. Thomas Pearls. I'm going to put a link below for those of you who didn't listen to it. It's It was really eye-opening for me in terms of you know how iron can affect women especially in menopause once we stop cycling and that we're not shedding blood every single month we're not getting our cycle and how it can actually accumulate in our system so I want to go dive a little bit deeper into that because I know you talk a lot about that and you wrote a book on it and um, then if we have time I really want to talk about methylation also so two areas that I think we haven't really covered in depth on our podcast and I think it would be really interesting for women in this phase of life so tell us what got you interested to talk about iron in the first place?
1: Yeah. So um, my first book, the book, Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan. As I was writing that book, I wrote about the hemochromatosis genes and I discovered that I was doing genetic testing on myself and, you know, my family and lots of patients. And I discovered that my husband had uh, inherited one of the hemochromatosis genes, which makes you absorb more iron and can increase your risk for high iron. And, and I had been kind of looking at the labs that he brought home from his primary care doctor. And there had been a couple of different times where he either had a high ferritin or high hemoglobin or hematocrit or red blood cells. And I would recommend to him, you know, you need to go and donate blood and his primary care doctor that ordered the labs wasn't saying anything. And so occasionally he would go donate blood and listen to me, but it wasn't being managed properly. And then when I realized he had that gene, I realized, okay, this is what we're really dealing with. And this is not, you know, just by happenstance and it's not going to go away because this is a genetic issue. And, um, Then ultimately, we had to get an official diagnosis because his liver enzymes were slowly creeping up because high iron will destroy many different parts of the body, but it's particularly hazardous for the liver. So that's often one of the first parts of the body that gets damaged. So um, his liver enzymes were slowly going up because of the high iron. um, and so, but iron, it destroys the liver. It'll destroy the testes and ovaries and females. It'll destroy the heart causing cardiovascular issues. Um, it'll destroy the pancreas causing blood sugar issues. Um, it'll destroy the um, anterior pituitary gland. And my, so it creates a lot of infertility type issues and hormone issues. And we went through the process of getting my husband officially diagnosed um, with hereditary hemochromatosis, which was a much uh, more complicated process than it should have been because he was basically the doctors were not recognizing what it was, despite kind of my giving it to them. And so um we went down a misdiagnosis rabbit hole, then we finally got him diagnosed, and then we discovered it was kind of um. The light at the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel was a train because after we discovered that he, you know, had hereditary hemochromatosis and treated him for that, I, I had been watching his labs closely, you know, checking his hormones and um, his DHEA and occasionally his cortisol was slightly high. And we realized that I thought that was high just from the stress of high um, iron because high iron can do that in addition to just stress from a stressful job, which he had. So The iron came down, but the DHEA and cortisol did not come down um, like they should have. And so we went to the endocrinologist and um, lots of different tests, but eventually we found out he had a pituitary tumor that was causing him to have uh, Cushing's disease, high cortisol. And so, because he was secreting too much ACTH from his pituitary gland, um, so I have no way of proving this, but my theory is that it's not just a coincidence that he has a tumor on the anterior pituitary gland, which is one of the areas that it really gets damaged by high iron. Mm -hmm. I think it was just, you know, high iron created a lot of oxidative stress and damage and DNA damage and, you know, perfect storm. And he ended up getting a tumor. I have no way of proving that. So, anyways, um, after. Going through all that, I'll I'll summarize this up real quickly, but after going through all of that, I became very sophisticated at looking at, you know, I had already been looking at the iron, but I really kind of looked at it again in terms of like looking at the hemochromatosis gene and I realize that there are so many people that are undiagnosed with high iron. And a lot of them, most of them have one of these hemochromatosis genes that make them absorb more iron. And then eventually, um, you know, I just got so tired of seeing this person after person, and I would refer them to a hematologist or to their PD, you know, to their um, primary care doctor, and they would get kind of poo-pooed and dismissed, Mm -hmm. like that's not a big deal. And so it was very frustrating. And thus, I, you know, created the iron curse because of that. Hmm.
0: So how common is hemochromatosis? hemochromatosis?
1: Yeah. So it's largely undiagnosed. If you look at the official numbers, if you were to Google it today, then it would say around one in 300 US non-Hispanics have hereditary hemochromatosis. Um, If you were to look in Ireland, Northern European especially the Ireland, UK area, it would maybe say up to one in 150. Having said that, those numbers are grossly undercounting because those numbers are looking at the diagnosed population. And only about two out of 10 to one out of 10 people that have hereditary hemochromatosis get diagnosed. So it's one of those things that there's really kind of a silent epidemic going on right now where people have this at a much higher rate than is truly being um, diagnosed. And so they're not counting those people. It's one of those issues where if you're not counting it, it doesn't exist, and, but it's a serious issue. Otherwise, I wouldn't be seeing it routinely in my patients. So I know that the numbers are way under calculating. I just don't know exactly how much. So how do we diagnose hemochromatosis? So hemochromatosis is diagnosed on blood work. It's really an easy and expensive thing to diagnose. The problem is that it takes a full iron panel, which is not very expensive. Having said that, most doctors are not ordering a full iron panel. Most doctors will maybe order a serum iron or a ferritin, or maybe they just won't even look at iron and they'll just get a CBC. Um, so, you know, if you get a CBC, then that's this complete blood count, then that's going to be looking at your red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit and um that does not include your iron levels because you can have like low red blood cells low hemoglobin and still have high iron and that's Mm. called iron loading anemia so you really need a minimum and these are not expensive labs you know a minimum a full iron panel a cbc and complete blood count, and then a CMP comprehensive metabolic panel, all together, you should be able to get all of that around 70 to 90 US dollars, you know, just depending on where you're ordering it from. But this is totally, uh, you know, within the scope of normal doctors are just not ordering these labs, but it's diagnosed. So hemochromatosis is diagnosed by looking at the iron levels in the blood. Hereditary hemochromatosis is diagnosed by having both high iron high iron saturation and high ferritin in the blood combined with one of those hemochromatosis genes. So if you have one of those genes plus having high iron, that's hereditary hemochromatosis, which is the majority of people that have hemochromatosis. Having said that, there are a lot of people that don't have a hemochromatosis gene that still have high iron and that's called non-hereditary hemochromatosis but it's always diagnosed based on blood work which is why it's really unacceptable that there's so many people that are undiagnosed
0: you know i recently asked to have a full iron panel done and the lab wouldn't do it they just looked at a couple of things so, really? Yeah, it's very interesting because they'll look at ferritin and I think they yeah, very interesting to me. And it was said on the results page, I'll actually have to get, I'm going to get, I don't have it in front of me because I didn't know we would even talk like we were going to bring this up, but I, I'm going to read you exactly what it said. And they said that they wouldn't do, it was asked for, but they wouldn't do it based on um, the results of specific tests. But I'm going to get that information for you because I thought yeah. it was
1: Yeah, so it's really common that labs and this is an insurance based problem like insurance is driving this problem, which is basically they'll they'll say we'll only order this lab if this other labs out of range. But that's that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy that's costing the insurance companies even more, because if you're missing people with, you know, if you're ordering full labs on people, a really thorough lab panel, you realize how many people have issues that you would have missed if you had done that insurance based, you know, protocol where you go through the, you know, if you get this, then we go to this lab and then this lab. Sometimes you just have to kind of be thorough and a full Aaron panel is easy to be thorough on, but that's really interesting. I wonder if that's because you're in Canada.
0: I'm not sure.
1: I, I don't, know. don't
0: know. It was the it, first time that I had ever seen actually something like that. So I was kind of like, oh, this is interesting. So, yeah. so Dr. Sutton, can you tell us so for, for those who are listening to our podcast, we like very at least you know, for me, I really like to explain it. So it's very simple for our listeners to say, okay, I got my plan. I'm going to go and I'm going to ask my doctor for this. So you mentioned a lot of blood work. Can you kind of break it down? It reminds me a little bit about thyroid because, um, you know, for a thyroid panel, we need six tests for thyroid, but most of the time our doctor will only test TSH. If we're lucky, free T3, free T4, then we have to, you know, ask to get the antibodies test. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. And the reverse T3. So it kind of reminds me a little bit about that when we're talking about, getting panels done. So I would love you to go into the detail, into the detail. What is it that we want? So for those of you who are listening, grab your phone, grab a pen and paper, grab something, pull up your notes. What are the tests that we should be asking our doctor for to test
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it reminds me of thyroid too, so much. And my hopes is that with the iron curse, it's going to be like this explosion of people that kind of get diagnosed. And I think it's ultimately going to kind of come down to the lay person, like driving it because it's clear that with this high rate of misdiagnosis and undiagnosis, the, the medical profession has kind of lost the battle. Um, so the, the, Labs I mentioned include, and I'm talking about a bare minimum. Now in the iron curse, I go through many other labs that you need to have in addition really to monitor your health for iron related issue issues. And then there's whole this whole other issue of looking at copper. And for the sake of not like overly complicating things, I'm going to start with the bare minimum that if you go to a primary care doctor, they're going to know what these labs are. They should be able to order them. Um, So the CBC, complete blood count, which almost all doctors order, you know, routinely. Um, The CMP, the comprehensive metabolic panel, which includes your liver enzymes, that includes your kidney function, um, electrolytes, that type of stuff. And then the CBC has your hemoglobin, hematocrit, red blood cells, white blood cells, that type of stuff. And then the last one is the full iron panel, which includes the ferritin, serum iron, TIBC, UIBC, and iron saturation. So if you have those three panels, basically, then you should have enough information to tell you, do you have hemochromatosis? And then you can look at, are you developing high red blood cells, high hemoglobin, high hematocrit from high iron, which is a common issue because the body is trying to store that iron and it stores it often in the blood as hemoglobin. And so it's a common issue where people that have high iron will develop high red blood cells, high hemoglobin, high hematocrit. And this is a problem because it's a clotting risk. If you have high hemoglobin, high hematocrit, high red blood cells, you're more likely to have thicker blood. You will have thicker blood and then that's a clotting risk. So these are people that donating blood is a really good option for them. Um, But, you know, of course you need to, and and not everybody can donate blood, but everybody, there is a way for everybody to have blood removed. You just might have to ask your doctor about, you know, doing a therapeutic blood draw. And then that, that last part, the CMP, you know, um, that's going to like tell you, are you having issues with your liver from high iron? And not everybody that has, hemochromatosis high iron develops high liver enzymes, but it is a common pattern. And it's often one of the earlier patterns to see, um, for example, in my husband and he wasn't and has never been a big drinker. So it wasn't like an alcohol induced liver type issue. Um, and even sometimes in people that do drink a lot, you know, their liver enzymes don't go up that quickly or that easily. So everybody's different. Um, but certainly um. You want to look at those labs and everybody needs to have those done at least once a year. Now, to figure out if you have the genes, the way that I get the genes done on people most often, I don't care how people do it. It's just, I typically go direct to consumers through 23andMe and then, um, you know, 23andMe will sequence the hemochromatosis genes for you, regardless of which package you pay for, from the cheapest to the most expensive. If you pay for the cheapest package, they won't give you your hemochromatosis genotype, but then you can create uh, the genetic detoxification report that I, I created that report. And so, you know, you can use your 23andMe raw data to figure out if you have the hemochromatosis genes and then like over 300 other genes. Personally, what I would do, including the MTHFR genes that we're going to talk about, I think. But um, personally, what I would like to do whenever it's me personally or my family members, I'll pay for the most expensive uh, 23andMe plan, like to get all the extra stuff. And then I'll also get that genetic detoxification report because I just want to get as much information as possible and then kind of create a personalized health plan moving forward from that.
0: Yeah. I love genetic reports. Um, you know, f- we work with the DNA company, we work with GeneRX, and I'm, is it, so did you create, is this a genetic report that you're able to offer to your patients? That yeah. They can get,
1: okay. Yeah, so they it's can- to the public, you know, you can just go to GeneticDetoxification.com okay. and create, if you have 23andMe raw data, then you yeah. can create that report um, just, you know, like you can create a lot of other reports out there. And then my first book, the genetic testing, defining your path to a personalized health plan, that's really designed to go along with that report. That was kind of the whole reason I created that report was so that people could read that book and learn about the genes and then get their genotype and then, um, kind of know what they need to do as far as nutrition labs, um, symptoms, et cetera.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned symptoms
1: because I want to go there next. What are the symptoms
0: that we should be looking for if we were, you know, obviously we, like you recommended, we get the test done once a year, but what is it we should be looking for? How would we feel if we had this, if we had hemochromatosis?
1: Yeah. So that's a good question. And, um, what comes to my mind is I have this image in the iron curse of this iceberg and there's, you know, the symptoms above the iceberg and then the symptoms below. And, um, Basically, within that iceberg, there's, you know, the top of the tip of the iceberg is like fatigue, joint pain, um, maybe menstrual problems. A lot of females, they'll stop having a menstrual cycle um, because it'll mess up their hormones or they'll just have infertility, um, like a low AMH, anti-Mulleran hormone, the, you know, ovarian health fertility hormone. Um, but it can cause liver disease, um, which, you know, if that goes long enough, then yeah, you'll feel that. But a lot of people, they don't feel liver disease, you know, they just maybe have hangovers that are worse than they should be. Um, it can create arthritis. It can trigger autoimmune diseases because it just creates massive amounts of inflammation, um, high, um, heart rate low heart rate variability. So just generally like your heart is having to pump and work harder than it should because your body's underneath a tremendous amount of stress. It can cause diabetes. In fact, the term, if you don't know if you've ever heard of the term bronze diabetes, but that is hemochromatosis because the high iron destroys the pancreas and it will create diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic disorders, hormone issues. But then it also, the iron gets into your skin and it creates like this bronzing of the skin. And so, you know, a long time before they had, you know, good testing for labs and whatnot, the term bronze diabetes was used for people that had hemochromatosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really can look like just about anything. Um, and the problem is often it, people just kind of write it off as something else, or most people, they might get diagnosed with the, a a symptom. Let's, let's say somebody gets diagnosed with uh, gout and the gout is being caused by having high iron. Well, they're basically getting diagnosed with, you know, the secondary or the tertiary problem and not the primary issue. And that's The most common scenario for people with hemochromatosis, like rather than being diagnosed with hemochromatosis, you know, maybe they'll be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, you know, because it'll create muscle pain. Um, If, you know, iron also really likes to go and destroy the brain. so. Um, It can cause bipolar, it can cause depression, it can cause accelerate Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, it can cause thyroid issues, and um, so it can really cause just about anything, and women are particularly kind of complicated because women often, although I have seen females of childbearing years that do become high in iron when they're menstruating and having children, which is a very iron. A demanding experience when you're, you know, losing blood every month through menstruation, especially if you have a heavy period, um, or having, you know, a child, you lose a lot of iron that way. So, but I have seen females that during those childbearing years they do become high in iron, but it's not as common. Um, what's more common is that people that have these hemochromatosis genes that are females, it doesn't become an issue until after they're postmenopausal or perimenopausal. I was going to ask you that because in perimenopause
0: and for some women who are flooding and who are obviously, you know, maybe they're getting their periods longer, you know, shorter, like they're, they're still cycling and in some cases heavy cycling mm-hmm. um, or your heavy bleed had heavy bleeding is it something that you can even diagnose in perimenopause or is it something only that comes into play when they're in menopause so i, I was just going to ask you that question yeah. so i'm so happy you brought it up
1: yeah it's it's really different for everybody and that's where we have to kind of let go of uh it, if we just hold on to let's really look at that iron panel And the CBC and the CMP and get people's genes, then that's kind of where we have our foundation for answers. And that'll tell us if your iron's high. And then, you know, ultimately the health problems that are a result of high iron will you may not entirely know that they're from high iron until maybe perhaps you get your iron levels into a healthy range and then you feel much better and that health problem goes away ideally now there are cases where if you've had this intense iron induced damage for a long time there's irreversible damage and that's what you know we need to avoid but yes you know there's so many environmental factors that cause and prevent high iron um, and females are really at the epicenter of that because of childbearing and menstruation. So, you know, um, but what we do know, you know, perimenopause—it depends on—are you bleeding more? Are you bleeding less? Do you have fibroids? Whatever. Postmenopausal, we know they're not going to be bleeding as much, right? They're—they're—they're they're, 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 they're not ble- bleeding at all, you know, unless <laughs> they have like a GI bleed or something, right? right? Um, so that is gone as far as postmenopausal um so that's where a lot of women they'll start slowly their iron levels will start creeping up and they they these women might have even been anemic years before from bleeding right. and menstruation or you know maybe they were taking a prescription that decreased iron absorption like you know an acid reducer or something there's so many environmental factors that's where you kind of have to break it down. And I do that, you know, in the Iron Curse and charts, but basically, you know, postmenopausal females tend to catch up with males, especially if they have those hemochromatosis genes, but males tend to have more of a problem earlier in life because they have, um, they don't menstruate.
0: So, so what I'm hearing is it's important to know whether or not you have this gene, because by the time you get into menopause, it's, it could pose a problem because if you're not getting these blood tests done every year, you know, the longer you had it, the longer somebody has it, the more damage it could create. So it's really good, whether you're in perimenopause or you're in menopause, ask your doctor for those blood tests, find out, you know, what your iron levels are, your ferritin levels are, and make sure that if they are high, is there a number Dr. Sutton that we should be? So when it comes to thyroid, so we're saying, you know, reminded us a little bit about thyroid. We know that there's the normal range and then there's the optimal range. Is is that apply here for iron tests as well?
1: Yes. But before I answer that, I just wanted to kind of uh, address something that you made me think about with what you said. And that is that, you know, Yes, postmenopausal females are at a higher risk for having issues with high iron, but this can affect them at any stage in their life. So for example, I diagnosed a five-year-old girl with hereditary hemochromatosis. It was causing severe neurological problems. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you have this gene, you're at a higher risk for high iron throughout your whole life. Um, It's just that risk can be muted and decreased by menstruation but i have seen a number of menopausal or sorry menstruating females in their you know teens 20s 30s 40s that become high in iron when you wouldn't expect it and it's largely just you know genes plus environment it's a perfect storm mm-hmm. And if you do have one of these genes, you know, this is hereditary. You need to check your family members. Um, And this is in all different ethnicities, although it's mostly in Caucasians of northern European ancestry. That's because the gene started in a Celtic Viking ancestor and then it came down and it you know spread throughout the world but it's particularly in high concentrations in Ireland because I, you know, the Irish people have a lot of Viking Celtic ancestors. Plus they went through the Irish potato famine, which created this bottleneck where the people who had this gene were more likely to survive and the people without this gene were more likely to die. So a lot of like the gauntlets mm-hmm. of um, evolution come down to iron and that's why this gene exists and that's why so many people have it because it's actually helps you to have more children you know and if a gene helps you to have more children you're more likely to have more kids and they'll pass the gene down so especially like in a world where we didn't have iron added to our foods, no iron fortified foods, no iron prenatal vitamins, no iron supplements. You know, uh, we couldn't go to McDonald's and get a hamburger with, you know, iron rich meat. It was a world where famines were common, you know, bleeding. Women commonly died from blood loss from either, you know, heavy periods, menstruation, childbirth. You know, there were so many things that caused basically this gene to do so well. So that's, that, that's that. But your question, which is a wonderful question, was, are there these functional ranges? And yes, there are functional ranges. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves is that like, if you order an iron panel, this is a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, If you order an iron panel and it has the iron saturation, then that iron saturation almost always allows people go up to 55% before they flag it as high, but the hemochromatosis cutoff is 45%. So why don't they lower that range down to 45? I don't know, but it's allowing so many people to have undiagnosed hemochromatosis. And that's just something that we have to teach people so that they don't fall into that trap of okay it can go up to 55 45 is the cutoff for iron saturation and then when you have that 45 iron saturation combined with a high ferritin that is the diagnosis of hemochromatosis high iron sat above at 45 or above and ferritin high now ferritin range is Much more complicated because some labs will allow you to go up to like females 125, males 150. Some labs will let males go up to the three or four hundreds. Some doctors are comfortable with ferritin in the thousands. I don't understand that, but I it's 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 a real thing. So if ferritin in a thousand is not okay. My cutoff, if I see an iron saturation over 45 at 45 or over 45 or even near 45, like 43, 42, whatever, and then a ferritin at above or near 100, then my alarm bells are going off. And there is no reason to not start really investigating this because if they have that hemochromatosis gene, it's only going to go up most likely. And there's so many things you can do to lower it with diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and most likely they're not going to get diagnosed properly which means they could you know if you don't if you don't intervene when you see that combination this person could live the next the rest of their life undiagnosed with this. This could kill them. So the, I see that as an opportunity to intervene and really educate them and say, we have to get these genes. And there is nothing that's going to hurt you about lowering iron right now where you are. There is no reason to go any higher. And if you do have this gene, you will most likely go higher. And it can and will destroy, if not your health, then the health of one, maybe one of your loved ones if you have this gene wow you know i find this
0: fascinating i a good friend of mine and she's a thyroid expert danielle mate and i'm gonna have her on the podcast as well and she was on our summit last year and she was telling me when we when i interviewed dr pearls and we talked about iron levels and not having too high levels she was telling me that her levels were like 250 at one point. And she said she was never flagged. So once she listened to, doctor, to our interview with Dr. Pearls and her and I, we start geeking out on all the science and the research. She's like, oh my God, like she went for to give blood and she did all these things to really lower her blood iron levels because her ferritin levels, because it's it, this this information isn't really that, re- at least I didn't know about a lot of this stuff. So that's why I'm so happy we're talking about it because For those who are listening, now you have a plan. Now you know that you have something you can look into because a lot of the symptoms you're talking about, Dr. Sutton, are very common menopause symptoms, perimenopause and menopause symptoms. Mm -hmm. Like everything overlaps, right? So Mm -hmm. I always, you know, always share with our audience there are certain blood tests to get, and ferritin is always one of those blood tests that I recommend hands down, along with vitamin D and our thyroid and our B12. And we've got our standards. So I love the fact that you're kind of digging a little bit deeper into it. So for, for most of us who go to our doctor and we say, okay, can you please check our ferritin? Would that? I know it's not enough and we want to do the the deep dive. Would that be enough of a signal to even prompt our doctors to go a little bit deeper? So I guess if we're going the doctor route to get the blood test, second question is, can you do these at home? Like, do you offer these as, you know, Do does somebody have to go to their primary caregiver or do can they get it done through other means?
1: Yeah. So these are really good questions. So I don't particularly, I don't accept insurance, so I can do whatever I wanna do as far as, as long as it's within my scope. And, and within my scope, I can diagnose pretty much anything. What I can't do is I can't necessarily treat anything. So I can diagnose hemochromatosis all day, but then I have to refer out for the treatment. And you know the reason I wrote the Iron Curse is because I kept referring out for the treatment and the doctors that I was referring out to kept getting it wrong. And then the patients were, you know, lost in, you know, well, she's saying this and they're saying this. And so I just wanted to lay it all out in the line and say, you know, this is this is the reality. Here's the 600 references. And, you know, this is my experience. Here's the case studies. Um, so as far as me, I order, you know, whatever I want and I never feel comfortable personally just ordering a ferritin because ferritin is not a reliable blood marker by itself. You can actually be anemic and have a high ferritin and that's called anemia of inflammation because Ferritin is also an inflammatory marker. So you can have a high ferritin from high iron, but you can also have a high ferritin because you just have a lot of inflammation and that can actually cause low iron. So if you're not looking at all the labs we talked about, then you're really like selling yourself short and we're really talking about minimal amount of dollars here that could save you you know decades of damage so the cost benefit analysis i just can't really get very excited about that as far Mm -hmm. as like ever not ordering those i think it's just really a fallacy within the medical paradigm that needs to be undone like a lot of other fallacies within the medical paradigm so um now what my plan is is you know once i publish the book is for i always you know think people need to work with a healthcare provider like yourself you know to look over labs and you know really create a plan but my plan is for those people and i'm realizing there's more of these people out there that they are trying to work with their doctor and they're trying to get their doctor to order these labs and they're not always able to and so my plan is to hopefully have a link where they can go and get that done themselves Although they still, you know, I recommend working with a healthcare provider always, but I think at some point in time you have to give people the tools to help themselves if they can't get the help through the, you know, required normal routes. And then you could, and if they have questions, someone can come to
0: you to, you know, to go over the lab results. Like yeah. Okay. So they can do that. So we're going to put all your information below. Um, okay. Let's talk about ways you, you alluded to it before. Let's talk about ways that if you know that you have high iron levels, how can we, you know, you you talked about giving blood. What are other ways that we can help to reduce the levels?
1: Yeah. So blood donation is a really fast way to decrease iron simply because most of the iron is stored in our blood as hemoglobin. And so, um, that, you know, if you're losing blood, it comes out very, very quickly. So um, if you, now that's based on labs. Removing blood is a medical procedure. If you go to donate blood, they are always going to check your CBC to see if you have a high enough red blood cell hemoglobin hematocrit. Um, they don't do an iron panel. They always look at lipids too, usually, but um, like cholesterol and stuff. But in my opinion, I don't think anybody should ever donate blood without having that full iron panel in CBC, which the blood donation centers are not going to do the full iron panel. So if, you know, I always like to order it before people go and donate blood so that we know, is this actually the good thing for you to do? or is this going to harm you because you can remove too much blood and then you become anemic and you know that's not good either and unfortunately the modern medical models for hemochromatosis and high iron iron overload they really only primarily use blood removal as their primary mechanism which i think leaves a lot of valuable options on the table and we can talk more about those in a second but if you're just using blood removal as your primary treatment then you're more likely to cause people to get anemic from low red blood cells low hemoglobin they can still be high in iron but it's just, they're anemic. They don't have enough red blood cells. And then they and then they can't remove any more blood. And then they're kind of stuck in this holding pattern where they have to wait until they can have more blood removed. And occasionally the doctors will give them like these chelating agents that have lots of side effects. So what in the iron curse, I talk about, I have the iron curse protocol. So, you know, the first step is you know, remove blood if you can. And if it's the right thing for you, you know, see a hematologist, have a primary care doctor work with you on that. Um, Even if you can't technically donate blood because maybe you have like an infectious disease like Lyme or HIV or hepatitis, you can still get a therapeutic blood removal where, you know, the doctor signs the script, they remove your blood and they throw it away rather than give it to somebody. So there's always a way. Hematologists, they can always remove blood and they can remove as much as they want. If you just go to the donation center, they're going to take a pint of blood out. Hematologists, they can remove a little bit more, a little bit less. So that's kind of a nice resource to have. Now, what you're probably wondering and your listeners are probably wondering is, well, what are the other options other than blood removal? And there are many, you know, the the second step is diet. You know, if you have high iron and you need to get it down, that's probably not the best time to go and eat, you know, a steak. Um, I think people can still eat iron-rich foods once they get their iron in a managed level. But realistically, if you're trying to get your level down, it's like, why would you add more to the equation at that moment in time? Um, you know, it's kind of like, if you're trying to empty the bucket, stop pouring water into the bucket. So, um, shellfish steak, really high in iron. Um, most people that a lot of people think spinach and vegetables are also really high in iron. They have non-heme iron, which is not absorbable for the most part. Like it's, it's, it's moderately absorbable. It's, Much less absorbable than heme iron, which is what's in animal products. So um, like vegans, vegetarians don't tend to have as high of iron. I'm not saying be a vegan and vegetarian. I think there's a lot of issues with that as well. But I'm just saying, you know, I don't think people necessarily have to avoid iron rich foods because Um, especially if it's like a vegetable, because if it's a non-heme iron, then you're not going to absorb that much of it anyways. Um, But certainly, you know, avoid processed foods with lots of extra iron added to them. And then um, what everybody always wants to know is, well, what are the supplements? And so there are, and I do have a lot of experience with supplements, and there are a number that I have experience with, and I talk about them in the book. And those include um, curcumin, which is a really, it'll, Curcumin is a great anti-inflammatory herb. So if you take turmeric, like what they make curry out of, Indian curry, and then you extract out the anti-inflammatory medicinal the property. Beauty. Yeah, the yeah that's the curcumin. And so the the advantage to the curcumin is you get way more anti-inflammatory, like per you know milligram, but you also take out the oxalates. So turmeric has a lot of oxalates in it. Um, which is okay if you know you're eating it in a moderate amount, but if you're trying to like be therapeutic by lowering iron, lots of turmeric could create some issues. So the curcumin doesn't have the oxalate. So, um, but pretty high dose of therapeutic curcumin um, can be very helpful. That is an iron binder. Um, It can also bind to copper. So you need to also like look at that and make sure you're not getting too low on copper, but that's a great way to both lower iron and it can also help to kind of de- get the iron out of the tissues because a lot of these people, they start depositing a lot of iron into their tissues. So, and curcumin's wonderful because it's been shown to help with, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, liver damage, um, just general inflammation, and a lot of the issues that are related to hemochromatosis. So what I've done with when with the iron curse is I've tried to replace like natural um Well proven medical research, nutritional herbs, vitamins, whatever, that can be iron reducers as chelators to replace those medicinal, the medical chelators, which have a lot of side effects. So, Mm -hmm. curcumin's one. Um, But then, you know, you also have to be careful. Like me personally, I tend to be more anemic, iron deficient, anemic, because I have Crohn's, celiac, and part of my intestines is removed from Crohn's. So, you know, I'm a menstruating female. So I tend to be anemic. So I have to be careful. I want to take curcumin. But if I take it, I have to take it like away from meals because it'll make me anemic. So these are things you need to be aware of like mm-hmm. as a female. Yeah. Um, so curcumin's a good one. Silamarin a good one because Silamarin also, you know, Silamarin from milk thistle. So not only is this going to bind iron and lower iron, it's been proven to do this in the research with hemochromatosis patients, but it's also going to help heal up the liver, which is a big deal because people with hemochromatosis, hereditary hemochromatosis are like 200 times more likely to have liver cancer. This is not a joke they have to take care of their liver. And nowhere in the current medical model are they talking about what are we going to do to heal up the liver? It's just let's get the iron down. When there's all of these nutritional supplements you can use to both get the iron down, but heal up the liver too. And so that's one of them.
0: Love milk, milk milk thistle. I'm so happy you mentioned it.
1: Mm-hmm. Look, this is a good one for binding iron. Um, alpha lipoic acid will also bind iron and chelate it and lower it. And then, you know, alpha lipoic acid is so wonderful for like peripheral neuropathy and lowering blood sugar. I personally can't take it because it lowers my blood sugar so much that I bottom out. So if you're like a low blood sugar person, then, you know, maybe not, not a lot of alpha lipoic acid. But if you're a high blood sugar person, which a lot of these hemochromatosis people are because the iron often destroys their pancreas and creates diabetes and metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. Alpha-lipoic acid is one of those things that we're not only giving you this amazing antioxidant, but we're also giving you something that's lowering iron, fixing the primary issue and protecting your nervous system and your neurons and your myelin sheaths from damage and lowering blood sugar. So, you know, that's another thing. And and I have like a a nice chart at the end that kind of breaks all this down so you don't have to memorize all of it. Um, there's, There's probably like six other things I could go through right now. I don't just know how much time you want to Go on, this. Yeah, why don't you
0: take us through them? And my guess, my question is as you're mentioning this, and it could be in the book as well is what are the dosages? So, you know, we're we here, you know, take this, take that. Mm-hmm. So, and I can't, you know, I can't do high doses of curcumin either, just from a genetic standpoint. So, I always say mm-hmm. listen to your bodies because that's really important. And I love that you're giving so many options. So, let's go through the other options. And then just touch on whether the, there's actual dosages that they yeah. should be taking, you know? So, cause I think that's important, right? It's not one or two capsules. It's here's the dosage that has been proven right. according to the science to actually right. help chelate the, the iron from your body.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things is that a lot of the research has been done on like mice. And so the dosage that they used on a mouse, you know, is a much, uh, would not be therapeutic as well in a human. So um, but there are some where dosage is really key. Personally, you know, the way that I approach it is for a curcumin type thing, I like around three grams a day. Three grams has been shown to be a good dosage. Having said that, I think you have to leave room for, you know, individualizing for that person. And as their iron levels get lower, getting them off of that, because you We don't want to, and I have seen this happen, cause somebody to go from one extreme to the other, like high and then low, just based on the supplements alone, not even with removing blood, just, you know, they had high iron, they have hereditary hemochromatosis, they took all these supplements and now they're low, you know, Um, and so that's where you kind of have to figure out That's where you need to retest and see, is this too much? Is this not enough? So yeah, for curcumin, I think, three grams a day, which is usually about six pills a day is a good dosage, but it's just like, you have to look at the individual with every single one. The good thing about a lot of these is that there's, I'm not going to say there's no side effects because, and I talk about, you know, the considerations of, like I talked about the low blood sugar with the alpha lipoic acid, you know, there's things you need to be aware of because there could be an unintended side effect, but it's, the side effects tend to be not as serious and easily resolved. They, they, they tend to be less serious and more easily resolved just by, you know, stopping them. And the side effects might be like, Oh, my blood sugar got too low, which is a serious issue. But again, you know, just stop taking it and it'll go back up. Um, the, what else? Um, Within that there is resveratrol. Resveratrol doesn't actually lower iron, but it does, it's been shown to protect the heart from iron induced damage. So there's less, and resveratrol is so great also for women because, you know, it's naturally estrogenic, mildly, not a lot, like very mildly estrogenic. And it's been shown to be good for, you know, bone density and stuff like that. And even have a little bit of a, um, mild estrogen effect in females and males too, um, which can be good for females that are, you know, postmenopausal and dealing with slumping hormones. But it's also really good for the brain and really, really good for the heart, um, especially for people with hemochromatosis. And it can help them to not have as stiff as a heart because once you get a lot of iron and inflammation in there, it gets fibrotic and then your heart gets stiff. And then when your heart gets stiff, it's hard to, you know, have a good heart rate and heart rate variability. And it's like the elastic just wants to break rather than the, the rubber band wants to break rather than recoil.
0: I just want to make sure this is for women and men, right? Because you know. Yes. Okay. Because when you were talking about the levels, is it the same so for optimal levels, would it be the same? You know, you're looking at that ferritin. So to be clear, it's to have that ferritin under hundred, right? That's really. Yes.
1: Yes. So most labs allow ferritin to go higher on men, but there's not, that's not because it's like, okay for men to have a higher ferritin. The reason that labs allow ferritin to go higher on men is because like, if you look at the bell curve on labs, they basically, they just, they a bunch of people's labs and then they create a bell curve to say okay this is a normal range for you know 10,000 men and the normal range is higher on men because men tend to have higher levels of iron because they don't have they're not childbearing they're not menstruating and so their range often allows them to go up higher but there's no like physiological reason That they need a higher level of ferritin or a higher level of iron but the ferritin is almost always higher for men my personal functional ranges for ferritin i don't feel like anybody needs to be above 100 if they are above 100 i'm trying to figure out why and how to get it down and then I'm looking very closely at the other iron levels and the inflammatory markers and the CBC and, you know, everything. I, do, I, I have yet to be convinced why there's a good reason for somebody to have a ferritin over 100, because if you have a ferritin over 100, you're either, you know, have high iron, which can cause inflammation, or you're just inflamed. Either way, it's not good.
0: Would there be a menopausal range for women? Like, so is there, can we go
1: too low in ferritin or would you say? You yeah, know- I mean, everybody can go too low. So I also think the lower end of the range on ferritin is too low. So postmenopausal females don't tend to go too low on ferritin unless they have like a GI bleed or something. Um, post or, you know, start bleeding fibroid or something. Postmenopausal women, you know, in my 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 opinion is that I don't particularly like anybody to be below thirty on ferritin, and I don't think that matters, you know, if you're premenopausal or postmenopausal. I don't want to anybody to be below thirty on, on ferritin. I think you need a little bit of a buffer there, minimum of thirty. And somebody that doesn't have a hemochromatosis chain like myself, I would really like to see you know the ferritin more around 60 just to really give them a nice buffer now for somebody that has a hemochromatosis gene has a history of high iron i think for those people you can comfortably you know and this is what hematologists do they will comfortably manage them in a lower ferritin range somewhere around like you know 30 to 75 or so um but they they have a buffer they don't want it to go too low and they don't want it to go high um but you know really that range it kind of depends on what the genes are and the person but i don't really see why we would need to change that over 100 and below 30 for anybody and maybe little kids right And then pretty much
0: anywhere in between then. So if you're 30 to, uh, let's say max 100, 30 to 100, then you're kind of in that optimal range or is it 30 to 60 for clarity?
1: So yeah, you know, really, I think if you have like a history of high iron hemochromatosis, I think probably 30 to 60, 30 to 75, I think is a good range for everybody, you know, period. Um, If you have a hemochromatosis gene, then... There's more of an incentive to kind of get it lower because we know where this is going and it's not going in a good direction and it can get really pathological very quickly.
0: Doctor Sun, this was so informative. So I want to talk about methylation, but we're—I mean, we went the full hour just talking yeah. about iron, which is amazing. So what? Here's what I propose: I would love you to come back. Yes. Because I would love to do an entire episode on methylation. I think yeah, it's absolutely important. We could talk about um, genetics. We can talk about all of that. So yes, I'd
1: love. Yes, that. yes, I would love <laughs> okay. that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd be very grateful for that. So is there anything else you'd like to talk Talk about your book, let people know, like, where can they find it when it comes out? Tell us where they could find you on social media. And um, if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we go.
1: Okay, thanks. So uh, well ironcurse.com is where you can, you know, learn more about the book and the workshop. And then if you just kind of want to know more about all the different things that I do and, you know, schedule an appointment or whatever, then drchristysutton.com is, you know, a good website for that. And drchristysutton is my Instagram and I'm on Facebook and TikTok and all the all the usual all the normal ones.
0: I love it. Well, keep doing what you're doing. And I found you on social media. So it's you're doing your, you and your team are doing a great job. So keep thank it up. You. And thank you for helping all of us. And thanks for being on today. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. That was a really informative interview with Dr. Christy Sutton. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it because the more you share shows you care. And please write a review for our podcast, Menopause Reimagined. I read them all, but also when you write a review, it tells whatever platform that we're on that you're enjoying our podcast and they send it out and recommend it to more people. Thank you for listening and I'll see you at the next podcast.